Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. And before we do, I just want to continue to welcome all of you, especially this holiday Christmas season, those who are tuning in by way of podcasts from the countries of Canada, Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, uh, Paraguay, I see, as well as some countries from Western Europe, Italy, Portugal, France, Spain, Germany. I also see some people listening in the Ukraine, India, China, and some countries in Africa as well, Kenya, Nigeria, South Africa. It is great to have you join me here in the friendly confines of Chico, California, where we are taking up again the book of Exodus. My dear friends, we are in chapter 6, right? And This evening might be a little different. You know, typically I go from one verse to the next and kind of explain what's going on. I thought what we could do this evening is take a look, a more topical look again, at the word redemption. And why am I doing this? Because, well, (laughs) what have we been singing recently? Not only does chapter 6 afford us the opportunity to talk about redemption, we have been singing what? O come, O come, Emmanuel a hymn in which we petition the Lord to, what? Go ransom captive Israel. Why is Jesus' death spoken of as a purchasing salvation? You know, the New Testament speaks of Christ not only as the Savior, but also as the what? Redeemer. But what does redemption mean? I mean, for many, the word is simply a synonym for for salvation, right? Yet this is not entirely correct. And if we don't break these words down as we ought, I think we miss something. You have heard me speak on the importance of understanding the word salvation, right? Salvation comes from the Latin salvatio, which has as its root save, healing balm. So God's salvific work is a work in which he is healing our wound, the wound of original sin. So if you don't get inside the word of salvation, you can miss something, right? And similarly, if we don't get inside the word of redemption, we will miss something of great significance. Why? Because redemption offers an important metaphor to describe how one is saved. Specifically, my friends, redemption is a term that is taken from the world of economics. Uh, Over the past week, Alongside of the book of Exodus, I have been working through Michael Barber's book, Salvation. So some of what we will get into this evening will be drawing uh, from that work and his commentary to this reality that is God redeeming. All right, so as it speaks to redemption, and even within redemption, the debt of sin, how are we to understand this? Because in the Old Testament, God describes his saving work in terms of redemption. And more specifically, in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, 
When the Lord speaks to Moses about delivering Israel from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, God describes this as redeeming the people. Exodus 6, verse 6. I will deliver you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. What does that anticipate, my friends? But the outstretched arms of the Son of God, right, on the cross. I love when you come across an Old Testament passage and it is immediately illumined in the light of Christ. We can, to some degree, this evening, anticipate not only getting into the New Testament, but also Exodus 24. Once you put Exodus chapter 6 in light of 24 and 24 in light of chapter 6, you can get a deeper understanding of what's going on specific to redemption. Which is to say, my friends, anytime you go to interpret Scripture, and you do so not only in the old in light of the new and new in light of the old, but the old in light of the old, or (laughs) a chapter and verse within a book in light of another chapter and verse within the same book, it can bear illumination. All right, what we are made to see, my friends, is God is frequently spoken of as Israel's Redeemer. Uh, The Hebrew word, by the way, translated Redeemer is Goel, Goel. Now, this Hebrew term is more than some theological abstract concept. No, my friends, redemption was a part of everyday life. It was a concept specifically related to financial imagery. Ransom, captive Israel, financial imagery, in particular, debt. Indeed, in the ancient world, my friends, debt represented a very serious matter in the case of an especially grave debt. A person could sell off one's ancestral land to pay off a creditor if you were to go to the book of Leviticus. In chapter 25, verses 25 to 34, we won't read that now, but just footnote that, huh? Go back there. And read those verses, and what you see is, well, what we just spoke to, a person being able to sell off one's ancestral land to pay off a creditor. Now, this represented a very dramatic, drastic course of action. In agrarian societies, like ancient Israel's, the land was a family's principal source of income. I think we can get a sense of what that might look like today, right? If even selling off your land would not suffice to pay off the debt, you might be forced to sell yourself into slavery. Again, this is all taken up in Leviticus chapter 25. This meant catastrophic personal ruin, of course. In some cases, as we read in 2 Kings chapter 4, your spouse and children could also apparently be taken as slaves. Nonetheless, what we are made to see is that the destitute, still had hope. Why? Because according to biblical law, a redeemer, a goel, could buy back another person's land and or freedom. You can begin to see what's going on here. What's interesting here, according to Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 48 to 49, this task fell to a family member. Why don't we go to verses 48 to 49, the book of Leviticus, 25, verses 48 to 49. And one of his, the debtors, brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a near kinsman belonging to his family may redeem him. 
Note the repetition of redeem. It's almost rhythmic, right? One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a near cousin belonging to his family may redeem him. Inside of the act of redemption, there is something deeply sonic about it, beautiful, almost musical. All that being said, the point to underscore here is this. Redemption was primarily a family affair. In Exodus 6, when God promises to deliver his people, he ties this to his covenant promises to Israel's forefathers, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go to Exodus 4 and 5. Exodus chapter 6, verses 4 to 5. What do we read? I also established my covenant with them. God says he will what? Redeem Israel because I have remembered my covenant. So by taking on the role of Israel's Redeemer, the Lord is shown to be family to Israel. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago. The importance of Israel being God's firstborn son. So by virtue of the covenant, God and Israel are now united in a familial bond. Redemption is a family affair. So redemption is an economic concept. And in connection with this, it is significant to note that in ancient Judaism, sin was understood as a debt, right? Jesus, of course, alludes to this, to this traditional Jewish view when he gives the disciples the words of the Our Father. We are all familiar with these words. He tells them to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors as we also have forgiven our debtors. The language is especially appropriate within a covenant relationship. Why? Because a covenant was understood to be a bond of love. God thus frequently refers to his love for Israel as an expression of his faithfulness to the covenant. You see, my friends, in the New Testament, Jesus' death is specifically linked not only to God's love, but to covenant imagery. At the Last Supper, Jesus takes the cup and says what in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, and also echoed in Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We have treated this before, that that Greek word can also be translated as testament, right? Diatheke in the Latin testamentum. In essence, Jesus is also saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the New Testament in my blood. With these words, Jesus alludes to one of the most important prophecies in the Old Testament, which is found in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God announces his plan to save his people. This plan that is rooted in divine love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Going on, God tells Israel to rejoice because the Lord has saved his people, the remnant of Israel. And then in verse 11, this salvation is described in terms of what but redemption and ransom. The Lord has redeemed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong from him. So here, my friends, as in the book of Exodus, God promises to once again take up the role as the people's goel, as the people's redeemer. 
And in doing so, God expresses covenant faithfulness and acts as family to Israel. And so it shouldn't surprise us. As in Exodus, God's promise of redemption is linked to the covenant. This time, God speaks of establishing a new covenant through which Israel would know the Lord and sins would be forgiven. Debts would be forgiven. Redemption, ransom. Here you see it playing out. And of course, the passage now here we have in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31, maybe Jeremiah's most famous passage, verses 31 to 34. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Incidentally, my friends, the only time you see the phrase new covenant in the old covenant, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. We are told why a new covenant is necessary. Namely, the former covenant had been broken because of sin. Here, Jeremiah is referring to the events in the book of Exodus. And so it is. Let us consider that in greater detail. My friends, the story of how God's covenant with Israel was not only established but also broken, as Jeremiah refers to it, is found in the book of Exodus, what we have been reading. And of course, at the center of this narrative is Moses. When Israel sins, Moses tells the people that he will go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness on their behalf. And in particular, Moses uses another important word. We've been focusing in on the word redemption. Well, inside redemption, there's another word, and that word is atonement, a revelation of God's love. You can simply define atonement as at-one-ment with God, at-one-ment with God, to be one with God. Now, we have already seen that the covenant is a key concept in sacred scripture. Jeremiah even speaks of God's covenant with the, with the day and the night in, in chapter 33, verse 25. Language that suggests the notion that God had forged a covenant with creation itself. In Jeremiah chapter 31, however, the focus is on God's covenant relationship with Israel. And in particular, how out from that covenant he establishes with his chosen people, you have the earmarks of God redeeming his people. Now, most people with passing familiarity with the Bible can identify Israel as God's covenant people. Certainly, the crucial account of how that bond was established is found in the book of Exodus and in the chapters and verses we have been reading. Because it is in the book of Exodus that we learn the covenant between God and Israel was ratified through a sacrificial ceremony that involved highly symbolic imagery. 
to our modern ears, though. I think the details of this ceremony might appear strange, yet the rituals it involved, as in the case of any ritual, are always going to be very rich in symbolic imagery, in symbolic meaning, rather. And so as you see in the book of Exodus, Moses directs young men to slay sacrificial animals. Once the animals are slaughtered, Moses ratifies the covenant through an elaborate ritual involving the sacrificial victim's blood. And here, I was talking earlier about Exodus chapter 24. Let us go ahead and go to Exodus chapter 24 to begin to grasp what we are talking about here. Chapter 24, uh, let's see here, verses 6 to 8. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it upon the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, my friends. What is going on here? What is the meaning of this? Well, (laughs) Moses' actions are tightly bound up with the logic of ancient covenant making, which is to say, by putting blood on both the altar, which represents God, of course, and on the people, Moses signifies that God and the people now share a what-but-blood bond. In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words for mercy, hased and Rahamim, Hased and Rahamim. The first Hased literally translates as a blood bond of love. What's the connection here? Well, my friends, out of the greatness, the richness of God's mercy, he establishes a blood bond with his chosen people. That again, his chosen people might claim him as God, Abba, Father. And of course, this is what takes place in the New Testament. So out from Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 to 8, what we have here is quite simple. An understanding that the covenant makes God and the people family. Furthermore, note that Moses only puts the blood on the people after they reiterate their commitment to keep with the covenant, right? All that the Lord has spoken we will do. With this, we come, I think, to really a crucial point. In biblical times, covenant-making was closely related to oath-swearing. This is evident, for example, in Psalm 89, where God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. Here, as in other places, my friends, covenant and oath are really interchangeable terms. When the people promise obedience... They are swearing an oath of covenant fidelity. Obedience translates as the obedience that springs from faith or the obedience that is faith or responsive listening. This is what Paul, oh, by the way, develops in his epistle to Rome. Why does he bookend his epistle to Rome with the obedience of faith in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 16, verse 26? Because he's talking about responsive listening. So when the people promise obedience, they are swearing an oath of of covenant fidelity. They are entering into the dynamism 
of their relationship with God. Now, why was oath swearing such an essential element of establishing a covenant? Well, by swearing an oath, one appealed to a divine witness who was understood as enforcing the covenant terms, right? The divine witness would ensure that those who were faithful to their sworn oath would be blessed, and those who were not would be cursed. And all of this, my friends, of course, was expressed by sacrifice, because all of this, obedience, response, is caught up in the language of holiness, right? What's the connection between sacrifice and holiness? Well, one means the other. Sacrifice comes from the Latin secum fice, to make holy. So all of this ritual making is caught up in sacrifice because it all signifies and points to, rather, holiness. Now, what kind of sacrifice are we talking about in the Old Testament? Well, the ritual death of the animal was a kind of self-curse. The sacrifice symbolized the fate of those who transgressed their oath. As later Jewish interpreters would recognize, this is one of the reasons Moses himself sprinkled the blood of the offerings on the people. Uh, One ancient rabbi said it this way, when a king administers an oath to his legions, he does so with a sword. The implication being, whoever transgresses these conditions, let the sword pass over his neck. Similarly, at Sinai, Moses took half of the blood. I like that. In short, my friends, by killing the animals at Sinai, the Israelite ritually acted out the covenant curse that would befall them if they failed to remain faithful. All that being said, after reading about how the Israelites entered into a covenant with God, we go on to read in the book of Exodus, if we were to really fast forward our brief study on chapter 6 into later chapters, we go on to read in Exodus chapter 32 how they broke it by doing what but worshiping an idol, a golden calf. When Moses learns of this, what happens? Oh, I think we all know what what happens, right? He smashes the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And when he does that, what is he doing? What does that symbolize? But the fact that the covenant had been broken. By violating their oath, Israel had triggered the covenant curse of death, right? And so, recognizing the gravity of the situation, Moses tells the people that he will attempt to intercede on their behalf to God. And here, my friends, we encounter terminology used in the New Testament to describe Jesus' salvific work, atonement. Moses says in Exodus chapter 32, verse 30, I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. In context, the meaning of atonement is clear. Moses seeks to somehow save Israel from the deadly consequences of breaking the covenant, can you begin to see the connections? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and asks the Lord to forgive. The Hebrew there is nasa, nasa, huh? In essence, my friends, Moses beseeches God not to execute the penalty which their sin deserved, for sure. Atonement and forgiveness are here interrelated. And certainly, a question that is raised by Michael Barber. I put before you, 
what is at the heart of atonement? Well, among other things, it really can have a sense of ransom, right? For you to go to Numbers chapter 35, verses 31 to 33, what do we read? You shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled, for blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land. In this passage, atonement refers to delivering a person from death by means of a payment that is what but a ransom. Here we are coming full circle to the language of redeeming and its tie to economics. And why? Because again, when you define atonement, in the end, what you are talking about is yes, a forgiveness, but a forgiveness that points to an at one mint with God, right? Breaking up that word atonement. And so God redeems, he pays the debt as he's crying out there on the cross. And as he does, he is entering deeper and deeper into the Paschal mystery, making us one with God. And so it is, as we define the Paschal mystery, is just not the passion, death, and resurrection, but also ascension. It is post-ascension that the Holy Spirit descends into the upper room and that we have the birth of the new covenant church with the gift of the Holy Spirit. This gift that has been given to us and as Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34 remind us, a gift that is etched onto our heart. And so we can sustain this at one mint with God. Amen. Amen. Let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.